This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 43 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And on this episode, we're returning to a guest we had around a year ago, Professor Caroline Kennedy-Pipe, Professor of War Studies at Loughborough University. Like last time, we're going to take quite a wide view on uh, some of the issues of the time. A lot of uh, things have happened precisely in the uh, topics that we covered last time, so we'll update those on Russia and geopolitics of Eurasia. And we'll start with being specific in the Arctic region and then work our way to the global scale and then maybe cover some other uh, topics a little bit later on in the episode. Professor Kennedy Pipe, Caroline, calling in today from the Faroe Islands. That's a place that I've always wanted to go. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us here. And can you maybe uh, say... uh, why you're in the Faroe Islands at the moment. Yeah, so thank you, Eric. Um, In the Faroe Islands, because there are um, a number of workshops and conferences taking place on Arctic security over the next three days. So a huge privilege to be here with um, colleagues from University of the Faroe Islands and indeed colleagues from the United States, um, the UK and across Scandinavia. So and some Canadians. So it's very interesting. Perhaps you can just say a few words about what's what's the general mood there with all these uh, experts on the Arctic region, is given the uh, current situation. So in the Faroe Islands itself, a place which I've never visited before, so I'll be suitably modest. Um, the discussion is, of course, about the erection of the um, radar, which NATO very much wants to emplace here on the Faroe Islands um, to really block a gap in NATO coverage of Russian activities um, across UK, Iceland, Greenland, Gap, and to the north. So that's one local controversy. And then here in the main conference, if I can call it that, experts will be thinking about how the aggression of Mr. Putin in Ukraine might signal increased tensions, will signal increased tensions um, in the Arctic. And from what I understand, uh, the Faroe Islands had a pretty extensive economic relationship with Russia on fish, from what I remember. Is that uh, is that something that has been put on ice, so to speak, at this point? Well, as you know, Eric, um, 25% of exports from the Faroe Islands do arrive in Russia. So it's a very important trading relationship. And I think the Faroe Islands, like many other parts of Scandinavia have always had to tread that very delicate line um, with Russia, which is accepting that Russia is the preeminent Arctic player. Um, We'll probably come back to the Arctic Council, I'm sure we will. Um, And the need to work with Russia, both economically, but also on issues, key issues like search and rescue. And then the demands of being part of a Western alliance, NATO, that really in the current climate seems to be drawing closer together and demanding more of its members. So in geopolitical terms, uh, Norway, uh, Faroe Islands, all have to keep that powerful neighbour happy while also meeting obligations to the NATO alliance. Certainly one of the topics we'll be discussing here is how to engage with Russia going forward. Why don't we start with the Arctic and then we'll maybe work our way to a, a larger Eurasian and global scale, uh, given the uh, circumstances of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So six weeks into this war, what does this new Russian aggression signal for Arctic security? So, Eric, I think it's not a shock or surprise to say 
that many of us who've watched Russia very carefully for years have been appalled, if not by its protestations of sovereignty over places like Donbass, but by, I think, the conduct of the war and the reach into Ukraine, its sovereign neighbour. Now, any number of explanations can be given for Mr Putin's motives. Uh, NATO expansion we've heard a great deal about, historical uh, Russian claims to little Russia, ideology, and perhaps Mr Putin's frustrations um, with the inability, if you like, to revamp the international system and the persistent disquiet in Russia over US hegemonic principles and practices. But as I said, even those of us sympathetic to Russia um, and its isolation, it has to be said during the 1990s um, and the last 20 years, um, cannot help but be, as I said, I think the word is appalled by the actual conduct of that war, which is reminiscent, of course, of both the first and second wars uh, in the Chechen Republic, the first of which Russia lost and the second of which uh, Russia won in an extremely brutal fashion. What this must do is um, shine a light again on what Russian remilitarization and its Arctic bases um, actually might mean. As you know, Eric, you and I have debated this uh, many times. Was Russia modernizing or was it preparing for something more preemptive and perhaps more upsetting of the harmonious environment in the Arctic? So the first thing is, can we revisit, should we revisit our view of Russia as a benign Arctic state or a more aggressive Arctic state? The second question, which is posed now with the isolation of Russia from the Arctic Council, which it chairs, is how to treat Russia in the Arctic. So the Arctic has traditionally been regarded as a zone of harmony, a place of cooperation, and really a world apart from the messy international politics of the rest of the globe, where conflict seemed somewhat inevitable. And this poses a very serious question for all Arctic players, which is, is that era, even if it was rather mythical than real, of harmony over? Can we expect to see, just as we've seen over the last two weeks, a reassertion of states' behaviour, my own country included, an uptick in military exercises, and a clear signalling uh, to Russia that that type of aggression that we've seen in Ukraine would simply not be tolerated against uh, a Finland, not a member of NATO, an Estonia that is a member of NATO, and against a non-aligned country like Sweden. So the Russia question looms large in terms of Arctic politics at the moment, and there can be Given Mr. Putin's supposed volatility in this war, there can be no assurances given uh, that Russia behaviour, as exposed in Ukraine, might not um, appear in the high and wider north. And I say wider north to include the Baltics. So, I mean, this great question here, whether the Russian activity in the Arctic, which has been going on... Um pretty substantially for a number of years now, whether it's, as you say, benign or more, let's say, aggressive in nature. Do you think that this 
obviously this this major military invasion of Ukraine, does that raise the alarm bells to what level in terms of how we should look upon Russian activity in specifically the Arctic? Does that require, demand a complete reassessment of how to deal with Russia, how to push back against some of these incursions? So two questions, Eric. The first is absolutely, how does Ukraine link to Russia in this zone of harmony in the Arctic? Where To be fair to Russia, it has been um, heavily engaged in cooperation with the other Arctic states, search and rescue, uh, economic ties, scientific uh, ties. But there is a history of mischief making. Um, We need only think about the cyber attacks on Estonia, the threats against Finland, uh, the mischief making in Sweden. For many of us to fear that this pattern of aggression could be replicated. Now, the difference, of course, is that Ukraine is not a member of NATO and therefore technically not protected under Article 5. And indeed, that has been, in my view, a godsend to NATO that it doesn't have to put boots on the ground or defend Ukrainian territory, as it would be obliged to under Article 5 if, for example, there was to be an invasion of Estonia. I think what has shocked and surprised many of us is, and of course, remember that the Arctic is a nuclear space. It always has been during since the Cold War onwards. Nuclear weapons, you know, inhabit, define in some ways the Cold War in the Arctic. And what we've seen in Ukraine, to uh, the dismay of much of the international community, is Mr. Putin's escalation, uh, the threats of the use of nuclear weapons, and then a de-escalation. And so one particular concern would be how to carefully read Mr. Putin's rhetoric in terms of nuclear weapons and how to avoid any calamitous misreading or accidental use. And in that sense, um, the Arctic is not immune to this tempo of uh, revisiting of nuclear threats. And that has to be a concern for everybody looking at Arctic security. That's one of the big questions of the moment, not just in the Arctic, of course, but in general, how to deal with this crisis given Russia's nuclear arsenal and some of the statements that Putin has made about uh, the potential, you know, heightening the uh, the alert level of uh, some of the nuclear forces. I mean, this is this is perhaps an impossible question, but how can countries that are opposed to the situation in Ukraine, how can they engage with this, whether it's the question of supplying MiGs to Ukraine or, or other armaments that have created no-fly zones. How great of a risk is this? Is the fact that Russia has nuclear weapons? How much should that constrain countries that might consider being more uh, more assertive in supporting Ukraine? Eric, that, of course, is the vital question. In one sense, we're in a very curious position now. We have a, a full-blown war in Ukraine with a state actor, Russia, uh, you know, versus another state actor, Ukraine. So in one sense, that is a conventional state-on-state war, despite the overwhelming odds which appeared to be in favour of Russia. And yet we also have what we might term a proxy war. We have a war in which Western states are supplying lethal force into Ukraine um, to help the Ukrainian Resistance. We also have proxies in there, um, Syrian fighters, Chechen fighters on the Russian side, and then that rush to arms um, through, you know, individuals and groups who have flocked 
into Ukraine to help the Ukrainian forces. So it's a complex and potent brew, which really has begun to characterize many modern wars. But you're entirely correct. We have a nuclear armed power, Russia, in this particular mix. So it's tempting to go back to the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina and think about um, that war as a model. And yet here we have a, a, a great European power facing off a multitude of enemies. And it is a nuclear armed conflict, which is one of the reasons why you are seeing NATO allies and friends um, being so circumspect in their dealings with Mr. Putin. And the dip diplomacy continues quite rightly um, as the war wages. The question is when can and should uh, the killing stop? And this is the big um, issue. What can NATO or Western states or the US do when Russia is backed by China and um, India and seemingly Pakistan to try and persuade Russia that this war has to be halted? And this is the interesting, I think, feature that many of us in the West got wrong, having pushed Russia into alliance with China over many years, having isolated China, and we do need to think about our own missteps. The balance of power looks significantly different in this conflict, and that is what Mr. Putin is counting on. And do you see this? I mean, you mentioned some of these other rising powers have been either on the sidelines, very in some ways loudly on the sidelines in their in their lack of condemnation of this invasion. Do you see this as a major reordering of the geopolitics of Eurasia and the world? Or do you see this as a, a regional conflict in this space between Eastern Europe and Central Asia? Or do you see this as much more deeper New World Order type of formative moment? I think it's both. So the Americans under President Biden have made it clear that their interest lies outside of the European theatre in their tilt to the Pacific. Um, and so that leaves the Europeans who are more cohesive West Europeans than we've seen in years. And I say that coming from a country that voted for Brexit. We see a very clear um, competition between a Russian-China view of the balance of power, what sovereignty means and what power means versus the international liberal order that the West has constructed since the end of the Cold War. And herein lies the rub. The idea of Western international liberal order runs directly counter to the way in which the Chinese and Russians see themselves. And so there is a competition of ideas, of ideologies, about what the international system should look like, but there's also a competition of values. So NATO and Western states adhere to a certain set of values and have done ever since the mid-1990s, uh, democracy, liberalization, capital, capitalism. You know, and many of the ideals of liberalism, um, of course, are those that underpin our societies. And yet I think what we fail to recognise is how antagonistic this was to the Russians throughout the 1990s and into the 21st century and the Chinese. And Eric, wouldn't it have been wonderful to be a fly on the wall at the meeting at the Beijing Olympics um, between the Russians and the Chinese, because I would put my uh, 
I would put good money on the fact that the invasion of Ukraine was discussed. Um, and so there is a reordering going on. And the Chinese will be enormous beneficiaries of the energy crisis in Europe. Um, China has been buying up ports and assets and energy supplies. So we are seeing a reordering. And of course, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Uh, when West European states do not have uh, secure energy supplies. In my own country, we've just had our highest hike in energy prices in a generation, which is causing some hardship. So yes, I think there will be beneficiaries in terms of the Chinese economy from all of this. It's one of the most interesting questions of our day, I would say. This idea of the of this Western liberal order that is in existence since the Second World War. So, And I can certainly see how Russia has not benefited from that. Its economy is basically a natural resource-based economy and is not really prospered in, in the sort of the same way as countries of Western Europe have, or even some of its Eastern European neighbors that were once part of the, um, the Warsaw Pact. But China seems like it really has benefited from this world order. They really have become quite prosperous and powerful under this world order. Do you see them as really trying to change that fundamentally? I mean, the economic aspects, the globalization aspects, or do you think that they can try to play both sides of this being an authoritarian state, but at the same time, a major trading partner? Do you see this as as a viable course they can continue to play? Or do you see this now as there maybe a pivot in a different direction after what's happening here in Ukraine? Well, I think that's the pivot is an interesting notion. Will, can the Russia-China alliance sustain itself? Can it last? Or is China being incredibly pragmatic about um, standing with Russia for those ideological, cultural, historical reasons? And then, you know, what comes after? And China certainly has positioned itself in terms of energy markets, in terms of, let's take the Arctic, its position in the Arctic, to move in should Russia's uh, position be diminished. And we all expect that any settlement over Ukraine, and settlement there must be, I don't even whisper the word partition, but uh, there is little doubt that Putin's Russia will be under scrutiny. How long Putin himself can last must be a question. So there will be a deal, a settlement on Ukraine. Um, and then you're quite right, China seems to be the major beneficiary from that. I mean, if we want to talk about a potential exit strategy from this, you did actually write an article in the Washington Post, I think it was yesterday, about this story from the end of World War II on the island of Bornholm and how it was occupied by Soviet troops. But there was a, a sort of an agreement made that could perhaps serve as a precedent or as an analog for potential into this current conflict. Perhaps you could say a few words about that just to give an idea of one potential way out of this current situation. So, as you know, publishing any article is an act of, of faith, and um, I don't want to overstretch the analysis. But I was reflecting on moments, times in history, when even recalcitrant leaders like Stalin appeared to be able to moderate uh, their ambitions. So Bornholm as you know, the Danish island in the Baltic uh, was occupied by the Germans and then liberated by the Russians in 1945. And as most of Denmark celebrated its liberation by British troops, um, 
Bornholm was held under Soviet occupation for another 10 months, uh, a little known story outside of Denmark. The reason why this is intriguing is that the fighting in and around Bornholm was violent, brutal. Uh, The Germans put up an incredible resistance to the invading Soviet forces. Despite the protestations of the Danes and the British to surrender, the Soviet army moved in, including Soviet soldiers, and there are incredible pictures in the museum in Bornholm of the way in which this occupation of a very benign nature appeared to have um, you know, been played out, not to say that there weren't some acts of violence, and of course to note that the Bornholmers themselves had to give up uh, food, agriculture uh, to their occupiers. The curious thing about this, though, Eric, is a concerted Danish campaign of diplomacy with Stalin um, to ensure that Bornholm was, would not be occupied in perpetuity appears to have worked. And after an agreement with the Danes that Bornholm would not be the site of foreign military bases, the Soviet troops fade away. Uh, there's a farewell ceremony and they leave uh, quietly. And of course, in 1946, we see other Soviet withdrawals, not least from northern Iran, although Harry Truman claims he had to threaten uh, Stalin on that occasion, and Azerbaijan. So what this sparked uh, in us is an interest in how even a Stalin could be negotiated with, how Russia in its current composition might be brought to the table uh, to end the killing. So neutrality is one um, is one trick, uh, it's one avenue that might be followed. Uh, Austria, of course, was rendered neutral in the mid-1950s by great power agreement after the death of Stalin, most notably the non-aligned movement founded by Tito provides another model. And even curious cases like uh, the Republic of Ireland, which is non-aligned, but but not non-aligned with the non-aligned, could we think of this kind of future for Ukraine? And here, of course, I know that as the president of Ukraine has made clear, this must at the end of the day be uh, what the people of Ukraine want. So all of these cases are instances where we should look very hard, I think, at the composition of state boundaries. Now, this is controversial because this is exactly what happened in the wake of World War I, where great powers, great minds came together to try and think about how to carve out, if I can use that imperial phrase, people's territories to the satisfaction of the great powers. And the big question here is, what does Mr. Putin want? And does that run straight into what our democratic principles would want for the people of Ukraine? But partition, whisper it, division, um, neutrality, they must all be options that are on the table. This idea of a neutrality for Ukraine, it sounds a bit like some sort of Finlandization, perhaps. Uh, there was a kind of de facto situation after the Second World War where Finland uh, remained neutral. And I want to get to Finland about what you think the potential, because there's a lot of discussion here in Sweden and in Finland, of course, about the possibility of these countries joining NATO. But before that, I mean, what do you think Putin wants, maybe what he wanted 
two months ago? And what do you think he would want now? What would be an acceptable outcome at this point? And being a specialist on Russia, perhaps you can say even more about how this situation looks from the perspective of the Kremlin. How do they see the geopolitical chessboard that leads them to act the way they've acted in the past couple of months? So the geopolitical chessboard was imagined uh, after 2014 as another incursion to secure eastern territories, the belief that soldiers, Russian soldiers, would be welcomed. And by, and let's face it, the West has not given Mr. Putin many reasons to believe that we are resolute. I think a calculation, particularly after the rush to the exit in Afghanistan, that there was really not a will to contest this incursion or this invasion. The miscalculation, to my mind, was the extensive reach to the capital, that overstretching of logistics and lines away from eastern districts. And again, the almost delusional view that people who are invaded will not defend themselves. So miscalculation, absolutely overreach, absolutely, and overstretch. And the misreading of Western resolution. In particular, I would posit German resolution, uh, along with, of course, the French call to arms. So there's a miscalculation here, which surprised many of us watching Mr. Putin, who has really demonstrated and deployed a pretty sure touch when it has come to reading the West. This time he got it wrong. Secondly, and perhaps even more shocking, uh, has been the performance of the Russian military. Um, This has really been, um, I'm going to repeat, shock in the sense of what we had come to believe about morale and cohesion within the Russian armed forces, as well as training. And this raises the necessary question for all of us interested in the study of war, and that is how conscripts fight. Uh, Remember that Mr. Putin has amended the constitution, um, that these conscripts that were seen deployed into Ukraine are extremely young. We've we've had our own issues with um, youngsters not properly trained in Western forces, uh, lack morale, lack cohesion, and seem to have absolutely... Uh, no uh, direction in terms of command. And if if it is true, um, horribly true, uh, the stories of the ill discipline of these troops, well, that speaks to a much wider malaise in terms of the Russian armed forces. So there has to be a question mark about who is confiding in Mr. Putin, who is providing him, if at all, with the realities of what it looks like um, on the ground. Having said that, if we look at the way that the Russians have fought from the Second World War on, I'm thinking in particular of Grozny uh, in the First Chechen War and the Second Chechen War, there is an ability to soak up losses, to take the pain of battle and and to regroup. And that's something we, we should watch very, very carefully in terms of the Russian military. So those are my two thoughts. Mr. Putin did indeed get uh, the reaction of the West wrong. 
and he also got the abilities and desire of his fighting force to actually wage a war in a, in a territory, in a country, with people who look very much like them. I should note that we're recording this interview on the 5th of April. But where do you see, Caroline, the, the war going from here, given this uh, this Russian underperformance? Uh, do you see any signals as to where Russian intentions, strategies, tactics are heading? I know also you're a, you're a specialist in urban warfare. So it seems like the invasion of Kiev, the capital, is uh, perhaps not immediate. But do you see this as being a way that the war will now turn to the east and maybe have, let's say, a less city-centric strategy? No, I think I think the city's uh, strategy will remain because in modern warfare, um, cities are symbolic. Uh, they are a, a material asset. And so, you know, there's no point um, in holding empty fields, as it were, for the sake of it. I think what urban warfare proves is that difficult though it is to take a city, uh, the material damage that can be done to morale by targeting cities um, is, is really, really important. You know, to kill a city is to take a city, um, horrible though that sounds. The other issue is um, in terms of city dwellers, it's where the population is. U- Ukraine is a heavily industrialized, urbanized um, place. This is about punishing um, the people of Ukraine. It's about defeating the morale in cities, and it's about holding those spaces. Now, it's much easier to defend than go on the offensive in cities. And again, I think the Russians have got that quite wrong. But if you look at the Russian bombardment of the cities, we've yet to see, um, although Mariupol, of course, stands testament to it, if you look at Russian strategy, it is to hold in the east. It is to create that bridgehead. And what we have to hope, uh, unsavory though it is, that that is what Mr. Putin will be content with and will not want to take the losses that taking a city like uh, the capital would surely uh, bring down on Russian heads. Very interesting. Another area that um, that you've specialized in, Caroline, over the years is uh, the history of the Cold War, an analogy which we hear more and more these days. Do you see that as something that is now going to be the next phase of this, some sort of extended, I mean, great power competition, United States, Russia, China has been a frame for the past few years. But do you see a real Cold War between the NATO countries, the West in general, and Russia going forward? And what role would China play in that as a third pole or as part of a of a Russian alliance? How do you see a Cold War scenario playing out over the next few years? Well, I think the interesting feature of the Cold War was that it became fairly rules-based. So after, you know, 1947-48, the Marshall Plan, the American uh, underwriting of the growth of democracy and capitalism for states like my own, uh, France, Italy, there was an acceptance, it seems to me, on all sides of spheres of influence. Um, And dismayed though we were by 
um, Hungary, 1956, Czechoslovakia, 1968, 1956, of course, when the Russians crushed the rebellion, there was an understanding of lines, an understanding of non-incursions into the security sphere of the other side. And um, the peoples, of course, of East and Central Europe were consigned uh, under the tutelage of Soviet communism. Now, what is different today, it seems to me, and this is something that those around Mr. Putin and he himself persistently articulates, is that they were happy with the Cold War in the sense of their security buffer throughout Central and Eastern Europe was respected, um, that there was little apart from through the intelligence services overt uh, machinations into their sphere, and that um, they retained the hold, for example, on the Baltic states. And you're quite right. We even had to think up that phrase, Finlandization, to speak about the very special status of Finland, um, ostensibly not in the Western camp, but as we know, increasingly drawn into Western defence arrangements. So. The difference now is, as Mr. Putin has made clear, and this is not an excuse for war, but it is his justification, that once that security buffer for Russia disappeared, once the Soviet empire shrank, Russia is left exposed to a more powerful, encroaching westward movement of um, military activity. And therefore, however clumsy, however ill, inhumane, by retaking parts of the territory of Ukraine, there is some satisfaction on the Russian side about retaking not just the territory, but the space. And I draw that distinction. And so the Russians are hugely sensitive, as we all know, about the inclusion of a Poland, into NATO. And we hear again and again the protestations that we were promised this would never happen. So there's a huge issue of trust. And there's also an issue uh, which is really rather ironic if you think about the Russian incursion into Ukraine. Well, it might have gained ground or space, but it now has NATO members all around it. Um, but it's that membership of NATO, Ukraine's membership, that seems to have been the final, if you like, escalatory state, uh, step taken or provocative step by the West. And this isn't new. This has been going on since 2014. And we have to ask all sorts of questions about the conduct of Western diplomacy as well as Russian misbehaviour. Because, you know, since 2014, the Russians have accused the Americans in particular of meddling in the internal affairs of Ukraine to turn it to the West. Um, you know, numerous allegations of American duplicity in Ukrainian politics and its anti-Russian nature. So the last few weeks, you're right, this is the war, but the build-up to the war has come over five, six, seven years. Do you think this preoccupation with security on Russia's um, Western side towards Europe 
has set Russia back in terms of its own security on its eastern flanks vis-a-vis China, where you have a, a much larger land border, a large population, a massively growing economy to the east, and now becoming so dependent upon China as one of its few allies in the world. Do you think this has really taken Russian security back by focusing so much on Europe and, in some sense, trusting China to be its ally over the next years and decades? I think, to go back to your Cold War analogy, the Russians always had problems with balancing, you know, what was the longest border in the world, I believe, with China, um, and how to face the West. And in nuclear arms control, the Russians would uh, consistently argue that they needed to configure their forces to face not just Western nuclear powers, but China. And that's why the Russians would argue they simply needed more, um, because they were facing both East and West. And so perhaps Mr. Putin's hope was that this alliance or relationship with China would allow him to achieve more of his ambitions uh, in the West or some form of restoration um, of its status. Um, It's difficult for those of us who've been the beneficiary of peace in Western Europe and perhaps in North America, to feel the sense of humiliation and hurt visited on Russia throughout the 1990s during the Yeltsin era. Now, you know, to repeat, this is not a justification for war, but certainly in the Russian mindset, and in Mr. Putin's in particular, Russia has been the victim of Western aggression. Now, that's strange for us uh, to be able to comprehend, but this brooding on the fate of the truncated Russia that he presides over has been to see Ukraine as a way, if not of rebuilding former glory, of at least providing a justification uh, that Russia still remains a great European power. Now, if we return perhaps back to the Arctic, what do you think about the Arctic Council going forward? There's a lot of speculation on can it continue to exist in its present form? We'll just have to sort of wait this out and then inevitably have to deal with Russia if you want to have some sort of pan-Arctic institution. You, by definition, cannot exclude Russia. Or can it be compartmentalized to some of these more operational levels, such as environmental protection or search and rescue and, and things like the Arctic Council has done uh, quite well so far? How do you see Arctic international relations developing? Well, Eric, you're calling on me to have the wisdom of Solomon, which I don't have. But um, you know, the Arctic Council has been a tremendous success um, from the late 19. 19- 90s on and bringing the Arctic states and Arctic stakeholders together. And as you've said, even in bad times, um, allowing there to be a dialogue, even if not on hard security issues with Russia. Uh, Two thoughts. The Arctic Council cannot be the Arctic Council without Russia. Uh, It's simply impossible to imagine because Russia is the predominant Arctic player. So the first thought, it would have to be very, very different. The second is, and this is a theoretical and moral question, by excluding the Russians, um, however, however we may feel about Ukraine, does that make peace more or less likely? 
So can we find a way, can we find back channels if necessary, channels to be able to talk to uh, moderate or more moderate elements uh, within Russia? Mr. Putin can't live forever. And so how do we envisage talking to a Russia, um, cooperating with a Russia? And if one thinks about the Arctic, of its very specific climate, the Russians do have a very good record on cooperation on search and rescue. Um, there is or was growing interest in environmental issues, and the Arctic is changing rapidly. Uh, Russia, northern Russia, is changing rapidly. Is it even conceivable, even as we hold our noses up against Russia, that we are going to have to find ways and topics to talk uh, to some of those in Russia. Environmental security concerns would be an obvious area um, of mutual concern. So the Arctic Council has to, I think, be reconfigured, be rethought, and here's its great strength. It's never dealt with military issues. So can it be reimagined as a forum for conversation? But I say that knowing exactly how um, those watching the tragedies in Ukraine would feel. My only answer to this is after World War I, uh, through the armistice and then the peace treaties, um, most wars leave in their wake. Um, extremely damaging consequences and a way has to be found to pick through um, what all sides um, want and can be achieved. Most modern wars do not end in surrender. Most modern wars, unlike World War II, end in messy compromises, redrawing of territories. I'm thinking of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and really um, a mishmash of agreements that satisfies some but not all. And I suspect very, very clearly um, Afghanistan, of course, and that American rush to the exit, which leaves the Taliban in charge. Um, an extremely example, extremely interesting example, but one I fear that we will not see uh, in Ukraine. It is far more likely to be a messy set of contested um, decisions, which I think many of the Ukrainians will have to swallow. Just a few minutes left here. I know you have to go to another meeting there in the Faroe Islands, Caroline. I just wanted to squeeze in a couple more questions specific to your own home country, the United Kingdom. But before that, we brought up uh, the uh, possibility of Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Do you think that would be something that would provoke Russia to a point that it could decide to intervene militarily in the Baltic region, or would that dissuade them, this this idea that Sweden and Finland are entering NATO at some point in the not-too-distant future? How would that affect Russian calculations around the Baltic? Well, this is, this is the, a hugely important issue. Will we provoke or will we deter? And I think where Sweden and Finland have both proved themselves to be extremely adept um, over many decades, is, is balancing um, the desire for democracy and alliance with the West and also um, 
dealing with, negotiating with, if you like, stroking their much, much larger neighbour. Discussions will obviously be ongoing, depending on what happens in Ukraine, because Finland and Sweden must surely fear, you know, they're not protected by Article 5, as the Baltics are, that um, incursions into their space, um, you know, would provoke um, the alliance. And the UK has, in its latest strategy, actually, you know, talked about um, reinforcement of friends as opposed to formal allies. I don't know, Eric, it's it's a question. We didn't think that Mr. Putin would be so ambitious as to overstep the mark in Ukraine. Um, Let us hope that he would take very, very seriously the warnings um, of the West that Sweden and Finland would be the beneficiaries, if not of Article 5, then of course of sustained uh, cooperation. I think it more likely that Russia will continue to toy with Sweden and Finland in terms of propaganda, grey zone and hybrid. Now you mentioned the uh, recent uh, UK um, Arctic defence strategy. Perhaps you could say a few words about that. Yeah, so last week in Norway, um, our Secretary of, uh, of State for Defence um, announced, finally, many of us, Eric, have grown old waiting for it. I think it's four years we've been waiting. And finally announced... Um, and this came from the MOD, uh, not the Foreign Office, um, that there would be a concerted effort by the UK to enhance its presence uh, and its support. Um, An array of um, activities by our Marines, by our aircraft, by our literal response group, all announced. Uh, The key question for those of us back at home in the UK um, was whether this was a persistent Um, promise or whether it would be moving in and out of uh, the high north and the wider Arctic as needs must. So that's the big question. There there is absolutely no doubting the rhetorical commitment, um, you know, increased training, increased military exercises. The question for us in the UK is how we finance and how we resource that tempo of activity. But that's a question that um, the document did not really address and some of us have raised, Um, you know, particularly with the energy crisis in the UK, it's going to be about um, how we pay for all of this. I think it's a topic that deserves more time. Hopefully can find a time to speak to you again or perhaps some of your colleagues that have been uh, involved with uh, such uh, strategies as the UK outlook on defense in the Arctic. And if we can just squeeze in one last question, Caroline, before you have to run about the uh, 40th anniversary of the uh, Falkland Islands War. What do you see as the legacy of that in terms of the geopolitics of the Southern Ocean and the South Atlantic? Well, you know, Eric, we might be a long way away from uh, the Arctic, but we're in polar politics territory here. And one of one of the concerns of uh, UK government has always been not just the sovereignty of those islands, but the, the reach it provides um, down into polar politics. So as we reflect on our losses uh, in the Falklands, we reflect on the brutality of that war and its, you know, victory. There is no doubt it was a British victory. The Argentinians were defeated. Um in, in that conflict, perhaps it was the last hurrah of empire, as many people say. But for the British in 1982, and I remember it clearly, this was about um, showing and demonstrating 
that the British could retake sovereign territory on the will of its people, that it could assemble a massive naval task force despite all the odds, and then, of course, weather prevailed in our favour. But the mood in the UK is not one of triumph, as it was at the time. It's a sombre re-evaluation of our losses, of the ferocity um, of battle, which was waged by forces on, on all sides. And really, we're tempted also to think about those on the Argentinian side, the conscripts who died, but also our own veterans who um, have suffered high levels of PTSD, um, in, in that in that campaign, so it's 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 difficult to put into words. Um, it was a British victory, but it also, I think, at the time we didn't realise because there was um, widespread censorship. I remember we only got news of uh, any disasters, any setbacks, uh, much later in the day. And this is the thing where the comparison with Ukraine fails. We didn't know much about the contact of the Falklands at the time. We knew very little in the UK. The MOD very strictly controlled any information so that morale at home would not be affected. It's very different to Ukraine, where I think the battle for the narrative, the fake news, the multiple sources, we're finding all very difficult to grapple with. So Falklands, an old-fashioned type war of censorship, Ukraine not. Thank you very much, Professor Caroline Kennedy-Pipe. Oh, thanks, Eric. 